This is Straight Talk in the COVID Economy, and my name is Larry Quick. Our world has changed and there's no going back. The COVID economy is now very real. We are adapting to telework, Zooming, online learning and new industries like PanSafe and other opportunities revealed by COVID-19. The challenges are also with us. Bankruptcies, unemployment, debt and confusion. In Straight Talk in the COVID economy, we meet thinkers and innovators who bring insight and information into the opportunities and risks of our rapidly emerging COVID economy. Straight Talk in the COVID Economy is brought to you by Resilient Futures. This is alongside our partner, Impact Africa Network. Impact Africa Network is a non-profit startup studio in Nairobi on a mission to ensure young, talented Africans have a chance at participating in the digital transformation of Africa as creators and owners. If grassroots change is something that excites you, visit www.impactafrica.network. By doing that, you'll be able to support, as donors and mentors, the Impact Africa Network. Hi, and I'd like to welcome everyone, everyone to today's discussion with my very good friend, Anna Ferengo. Um, Anna is here, and I think you're, you're hibernating somewhere. Anna, where is it? <laughs> We're hibernating up at Port Stephens, Larry. Port Stephens with its beaches <laughs> and its golf courses and its bird... Oh, no, I can't say bird. <laughs> but, yeah, that's only on Anzac but I'm just going to say to open that Anna's um, can be, details can be further found on www.annaferenga.com.au and I'll spell that for you, A-N-N-A-F-E-R-I-N-G-A.com.au. And I strongly recommend you talk to Anna. Um, uh, Anna's background just blew me away when I first saw her presenting at a client of, at a joint client of ours uh, in 2019, that was before COVID-19. So it, it, it's more pertinent today, but just to give you a bit of background on Anna. Uh, Anna has 17 years consulting experience in workplace mental health across all industries. Uh, one of the best that I've ever heard and seen. And she has a background in organisational psychology, works for businesses and government agencies. And it's about building effective and practical mental health programs. I could go on all day about Anna's background but what really struck me was making it real um, for organisations uh, in the terms of lost productivity and mental health injury. And as a person who has had a, um, a mental health condition since I was basically born, I'm a bit on the spectrum. I've had um, uh, a, a situation with a, a depression and anxiety not so much of recent times, uh, right the way up through my early life. And if only I'd known or worked at a place where there'd been an Anna Ferengi, my life would have been different. Not that it hasn't been a great ride, but it would have been completely different. So the context for today's discussion is that even prior to COVID-19, we've had a problem, a big problem, with exponential growth and mental health issues. And I know that from working in the US um, I did a conference over there around mental health for two days and it was just mind-blowing to actually experience the problems and the issues that existed in the United States and its, its sub subsequent consequences. Um, the interdependencies into the health system and bad health, oh, it was just amazing to experience that. And, you know, we're seeing the social breakdown. We have mental illness, we've got uh, drugs, social breakdown of families, domestic violence, homelessness. These are all pretty common, but they're not necessarily bundled in. Uh, the economic, lo economic loss of productivity and real innovation. 
So th this isn't just about someone who's acting a bit odd, you know. Um, and it's, it's really also about the inability to cope with change and especially disruptive change. Now, we've got COVID-19 uh, hitting us and with this situation occurring prior to COVID-19, now we've got COVID-19, it really is a challenge. How are we going to deal with you know, COVID-19 in terms of well-being and health, but how are we going to deal with economic fragility in the, that emerging COVID-19 economy and also looking at the political and government sort of chaos and trying to handle this stuff you know, where we're normally used to relying on government to get us through these things. And let's not forget that we had fires in Australia and floods. That uh, disruptive change in terms of extreme weather hasn't gone away. So with that opening, welcome Anna. And I'd like to ask you the first question. Um, in general, um, and we'll come to COVID-19 issues a bit later, how do you see the situation in terms of mental illness in business and communities and government organisations today? Oh, thanks, Larry. And uh, what, a, what a, a fabulous introduction. I probably could have sat there and listened to that a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can send the check later. Oh, thank you very much. Look, and I, I do like the way that you, in your opening, spoke about what mental health challenges we are facing in workplaces pre and post COVID. Uh, this was already a significant issue uh, pre COVID. What COVID's done is just brought it more to light. So what we're facing, what businesses and industry are facing is just the primary lack of priority and education. And normally education will come first because we have to understand and respect something before we prioritise it. I mean, we use the term stigma and mental health a lot. Yeah. And whether COVID is here or not, stigma is still the same. And what we were finding pre-COVID is that the term mental health didn't really have a safety aspect to it. It was more of a nice to have or a piecemeal approach, if you like. And what, what companies are facing in, the, in that respect is if we're not doing it well and we're not prioritising it well and, and making it available uh, for our people to respect and understand whilst at work, the fallout is huge. And what that fallout looks like is very much of what you spoke about. It is people not being able to perform their job well, relationship breakdowns in organisations, um, the increase of error and mistake. Because what we like to do is put physical safety on one side of the, of the cliff and mental health on the other side, when in fact they're one. Both in the same. That's right. That's right. And it's very important that we put it under the banner of safety. And that's what we're finding is helping companies better understand and better integrate the concept of mental health and then how to deliver it to their people in a way that's digestible but also sustainable. Yeah, I guess the, the thing for me is it's never been raised in my lifetime at least as a, as a, um, a health issue, safety issue or any issue. Uh, and obviously, that, and that's from the organisational perspective, whether it's business or government, it's never um, raised, well, it's, it's not very often raised through the stigma situation by individuals. And I, I know that because of my training uh, as a um, 
Ambassador for Beyond Blue, that the, the uh, percentages are just amazing of people who either have episodic sort of acute conditions or they have um, chronic conditions, like my condition uh, is chronic and I've had to learn to manage that over the years. Um, and the, I think for me, the stigma was like, I lost the stigma a long time ago because I, I thought to myself, well, if, if I'm mentally ill, then fantastic, let's get on with it. Um, as in, and that sounds, that sounds as if I'm being um, flippant. I, I'm not because um, I sought my own um, counselling and learning and the education you talk of was amazing. I just went and got educated, particularly around the internet. I tracked down and all sorts of things, and particularly having five kids and five partners, that's 10 kids, if you like, and the, all the issues that they have, I found myself just wanting to learn more and more about what the hell's going on and standing up and saying, this is what my issue is, being discussed with other people. So when I went out and speaking with uh, Beyond Blue, um, I, I would ask them two questions after I told my story. I'd say, how many people have either had uh, a, a condition or uh, experiencing a condition? And people put their hand up and I'd say, how many people, keep your hands up, how many people know somebody who has? And all people put their hands up. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking to every type of uh, constituency you can think of. It was everywhere. And we broke it down to what it was. And really, it was like, to me, you know, different. I've strained my ankle all the way through. It was badly broken, fractured, and I need, it. I need orthopedic surgery. And when, I, when you ask the question, who's getting treatment, it was zero to, to a few. And that, to me, is just plain dumb. And it, to me, it says about education and about um, normalisation, normalisation, education, and treatment at the individual level and at the group level and celebrate the buggery out of it. I, I think the celebration is more important. Well, I think, I think you know, Larry, that the celebration is the nice end of things. Yeah. You know, as humans, we embrace the nice end of things. And when you throw around a term like mental health, that doesn't sit in the nice area for a lot of people. That sits in the area of fear and open to interpretation and preconceived notions of what people's past experiences have been when they've dealt with people with mental mental illness yep. so you know, for moving it from the from the or for the one of the better words the bad bucket into the good bucket is the opportunity that we all have yeah but you could remember the time maybe i mean i i definitely remember it when um having a disability uh, a physical disability was you hide those people away mm. And now we celebrate it through the Paralympics, you know, and there's the person who hasn't got any legs running on two of those, those like emu type legs yep. and running faster than the people with fully what call full body. That's right. You know, I reckon, you know, and I saw a bit of it during the, um, uh, what's the, um, the Prince Harry games called, uh, you know, where he puts the, like, the Olympic games on for veterans with disability, well, they have one for people who suffered PTSD and they celebrate the winning and, and, and working through. And that's what I sort of mean by celebration. Yeah. I just wonder if that's a, a way of thinking about that, particularly in the future of work. 
I definitely think that that's uh, an amazing opportunity for the future of work. Um, it's very advanced for the future of work because right now with work, we've probably only got a 15% strike rate of organisations that are introducing, educating and helping people respect firstly how common mental illness is or mental health challenges are, but secondly... Most people. Most people have a better opportunity to pick up early signs and then mitigate risks that come with it if we don't. And, and celebrate the opportunity. And then celebrate the fact that they've been caught early, they've been assisted early, they've been rallied around early, and just like anyone else with a disability, Larry, they stand the best chance of recovery and getting back to their life that once was. Yeah. The problem is, because we don't know enough about it from a general population point of view, that we're missing those signs and it's more or less ending up in consequence for that person. And that's where we lack the ability to celebrate yes. because we're very reactive. Yeah. And when someone's struggling at work particularly, how well do you think they're going to be able to do their job? Yes. Yeah, if, you, if you've got that stigma and you're hiding it, you know, I know, um, I mean, I still have, um, I, I consider myself the child in Larry uh, and the, the person, then there's the person that um, uh, gets a, um, a sense of how to manage it through them, their own self and counselling, etc. And then there's the product that sort of is an adult, if you like, in the world with the responsibilities to bring the kids up and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I've had a pretty tough time during all that. I know as a kid, I was too scared to get on a bus sometimes. I used to wait for the last bus to make sure that there's nothing on the bus. And I, that, that didn't go away. That used to come back at me. and still does sometimes. comes back at me and goes, mm. and I, I have to sort of push through it now. But as a kid, I'd, I didn't get home until everyone else had gone home from the bus because I waited till everyone had gone didn't get to work on time and all those sorts of things. So if there wasn't on the train, if there wasn't a spare cab, she used to have cabs in those days, I'd wait till I could see an empty one and close the door because no one got picked up from my station into town. Mm. So all of that weirdness you have as, a, as being an un, unconfident kid and then, you know, trying to work out who I was. So I developed this, particularly when I went to live in England when I was 18, this huge person, like out there, you know, and you know, <laughs> then there'd be those times when I'd go to a party and hide in the closet because I was scared. It's just weird stuff that occurs in a person's head. Then you put that in a workplace and, you know, the tension between me being a frightened, scared kid and being a, um, uh, I wanted to prove myself because I was this sort of, a, a gregarious blah 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 Aussie that arrived in England and I could say what I want and do what I wanted because that's what Aussies do, you know. And juggling that in the workplace was really strange. But you know, and today I just go, I you know I was brought up in a place called Rivervale in in Western Perth, and there's a Rivervale boy still there. Uh, aggressive. I was how I got over my kidness. I was angry and all that sort of stuff. You know, I wasn't a very good fighter. I was a good runner, but I used to look really tough when I was like, <laughs> and that, that one continued on. People used to be frightened of me when I was an adult if I ever got <laughs> that way in the younger days. But, you know, it's sort of you, you have these experiences and then you turn up at work and there's a fabric of turning up that you have to be 
you know, this person that's represented in a suit or a tie or whatever, or high vis, and you've got to be a tough blah blah. I mean, one of the biggest shocks I ever got when I went and used to hang out, um, not that I was gay, but they were one of the best nightclubs that went in the UK. I was lived there for the whole seventies, went used to go to gay clubs and see people I knew that were tradies and all this, and they were cross-dressing and all that stuff, and I'm going, amazing. Well done. Most <laughs> fun you'll have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, but, you know, there's this mixed sort of person there that's yeah. a managing director, a CEO, a chairman or a chairwoman, a tradie or whatever it might be, struggling with their inner turmoil, and we just expect them to turn up to work and do their thing as if everything has a rhythm day by day and nothing changes. Well, I think, look, there's two points to, to this one as well. Firstly, you know, who defines normality, right? Absolutely. What normality is, is each and every one of our own norm normalities. Yeah. Where that shifts and where that gets difficult is when we, work, when we are required to work in someone else's world order. Yes, right? yes. And, very key point. And there is two ways someone can have that experience that you had, Larry, going into a workplace. They can either be coming into that workplace with pre-existing challenges, which you clearly have had in your past, or they could be at work and become well whilst at work. Yeah. Or be, oh, sorry, be, become unwell whilst at work. Yeah. Now, here's where we can help as workplaces and organisations. We don't want to disrupt someone's own normal, we just want to be able to provide a platform that is authentic, available, digestible and applicable. And people don't actually have the capability to think that that's possible with mental health or, or mental health safety platforms in workplaces. Yeah. And for two of those reasons, one is it's either not a priority or it's in the too hard basket. Yeah. It's not seen as something that we can absolutely bring some sort of calm and order to for people that are struggling with mental health problems in workplaces. Yes. And that's just simply not the case. Yeah. Like any form of education, if it's delivered in the right paradigm to the right people in the right time, you will get traction. And what I mean by that is people that don't have a mental health problem will start to respect those that do. And yep. those that do have a mental health problem will be more comfortable to speak up and ask for what it is that they might need to perform their job better and safely. Yeah. And, and there's these sort of images we put in our heads. You know, I mean, I was very fortunate. I think the, I, I, when I first got a job after a very brief stint in the army, I got a job in banking and I had to turn up in a, a shirt and tie. Didn't have to wear suits in those days, it was in the 60s. And then all of a sudden everyone wears suits. And you know, I go, well, why do you wear a suit? And women start wearing the suit version and that's supposed to be, oh, well, she must be executive. And they go, no, no, what's the suit got to do with capability and hmm. commitment of people? And then, you know, you go and live and work in America like I did for 10 years. And, you know, it's like optional. And I just refused to, I started working there and I wore a shirt outside my trousers, a T-shirt on, and that's what I wore. And everyone thought that was what I wore. And uh, I just said, I'm not going to wear a suit again. And we, we, we ban suits here unless you really like them and want to wear one. You know, not many people do. Um, and uh, 
but you know, they, 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 then you have sort of nine to five, and then you have this, and you have that, and then, then there's the hierarchy, and then there's the bow and the straight, all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm just saying, does it fit your workforce? You know, does it really fit the way, particularly millennials and knowledge workers want to work? You know, uh, I, I, I think I have my example of that, but I'm not saying it's, it's um, uh, a, um, it's critical. You don't wear suits or anything, well, you do. I'm just saying, it's, is that the right thing for the people? You know, I, I had this image when I did some work with IBM. There was a guy that worked for IBM. He had a suit and all that sort of stuff on. And he had, a, what do you call it, a, um, uh, a mohawk. <laughs> and I thought, well, that is fantastic. <laughs> there's the suit, but there's the mohawk. So, you know, I'm just thinking that it's, it's, the, it's the framing that you have as an organisation, that the culture exudes what is right and what isn't, or what's appropriate behaviour, what's inappropriate behaviour. But there has to be a, an allowance there for, you know, I was reading something just recently that vulnerability is something, there were two things I read about vulnerability. One was that uh, leaders with vulnerability and can share that with people, get better results. And the second thing, vulnerability um, is better for picking up guys or girls, if depending on who you are. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the vulnerability thing, picking up guys, that's gone a long time ago. Uh, my wife threatens to cut my neck if I did something like that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's sort of the, the vulnerability aspect, particularly at this time, you know, vulnerability, what's wrong with vulnerability? Uh, look, there's nothing wrong with vulnerability. And if, if vulnerability was an easy sell, Larry, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be having half the problems that we've got right now. And that leads me to one word, particularly for, for organisations and industry that want to change. And that is permission. Permission. People are waiting for permission, right? We've got a bunch of people, like you said, they're either at work at the moment or they're isolated. Um, and particularly now more than ever, this is one of the largest pieces of change that's ever going to hit industry or business as we know it, particularly in, well, in my lifetime, that's for sure. And so we run a higher risk if we don't start embracing the vulnerability um, and having human-to-human -human conversations about how are you really? Yes. The consequences to mitigate will be tenfold. Yeah. Uh, we're under a lot of pressure right now and there are a bunch of people that just want to be able to talk about it not necessarily in a clinical setting that's for that's for clinical professionals yeah. to do but think about this if you're a leader larry and someone starts to open up to you and tell you all of their issues and you're their you're their boss where's your boundary yeah. so what we need to do is give particularly leaders in organizations the skills to firstly be vulnerable yeah ask the right questions and know when to stop. Yeah. And when I say stop, I don't mean stop caring. Just yeah. know where else you can guide that person. But yeah. no one's going to do it unless the organisation reframes it and gives their people permission. Yes. It's okay. This is what we expect you to be doing because this, particularly now during COVID, is what's going to help us the most. Yes. And not everyone's going to respond to that the same way, but I know you know, what's kept me 
you know, up for 15 hours a day, particularly in the last six weeks with COVID, was people saying, how do I continue to be connected to people? How do I care when I'm not there? And my question to them is, did you care in the first place? And what did that look like for you? Ah, very good question. Because we have a, a situation where, in resuming futures, where we start a meeting of um, most meetings uh, is check state. And we have a, a, a daily core team meeting. And we have what we call a world team meeting on Fridays. And it's, we, we call it check state. What, where are you at? You know, and, you know, uh, it's interesting because people will say, oh, you know, everything's fine, everything's good. You know, what, does that, what does it look like that in COVID-19? You know, and you just, but we usually start and, you know, Dave and I uh, um, usually, I usually say, well, you know, I've had trouble last week. I, I had a few cries last week because I'm going to miss hugging my, my grandkids, mm. you know, and um, I, I miss, um, I don't, I'm not, living with my wife at the moment and I'm hearing stories and I can't, you know, we've got 23 people in the family, you know, and I'm, I'm working seven days or six and a half days a week. And so, you know, by, we, I call it sharing what's there, you know, yep. share your heart. You know, I wrote a book of poetry on that once, believe it or not, but sharing <laughs> your heart. And, you know, I just say, fuck it. If you don't like it, you know, that's it. That's who I am. So, you know, and excuse me for swearing, but, you know, like it is, it's just like, come on, guys, let's just get over it. Whatever the macho thing is, because, you know, one of the things I notice is, and Helen, my wife, said to me yesterday, said, all the girls are talking to each other, the blokes are going, oh, 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 oh. you know, bottling up inside. No, speak your heart, share your heart. Now, I want to just take us, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it's, it's important to, and the reason why you're having those discussions with your team, Larry, is that you are creating the space to let that happen. Yeah. Whether people buy into it and really want to share, yeah. and don't have that fuck it attitude, yeah. or they don't want to partake but they've been asked the question, is that's more an attempt at authentic safety than not asking the question at all. Yeah. And as we know, the more that we expose humankind to particular pieces of change, the more used to it they get. And so just by little things like asking the question and meaning it, but also knowing what your boundaries are. It's like, oh, gosh, this conversation's going way yeah. too deep for my, my ability. Yeah. Um, I actually, as a leader or a supervisor or whatever organisation you are, I actually know what to do to offer yeah. this person further support. Yeah. And that just comes back to education. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things I was saying earlier that, the training I did at Beyond Blue was just fantastic mm. um, to say when to offer the difference between telling your story and offering advice. There's a big distinction between the two. Because what I would say is, oh, dear me, I could have say a lot about this, but this is where you should go. Which leads me to just some examples of the work you're doing at the moment, Anna. Yeah, of course. For organisations so or for businesses, wherever that might be. <laughs> well... There's a lot of them. We go across government. We're working with uh, large non-for-profits at the moment. We've got a large amount of clients that are essential workers. Um, so we're balancing two lots. We're balancing the stress that people are feeling going to work and we're balancing the stress that people are feeling whilst working at home. And I guess one of the pinnacle pieces that we have been driving education home for is this is a very stressful period for a lot of people. It's been amplified. So as an organisation, what does your 
critical incident management look like? And people look at me and they're like, critical incident management, that sounds like it should sit on an RMS system somewhere. And my response is, well, yeah, it damn well should, but I'm talking about a mental health critical incident. Yeah. We know that there is a lot of depression. In fact, over well over 2 million Australians have clinically diagnosed depression and even more with anxiety. And you take those people and then you put them in COVID. What is the likelihood that, Larry, one of your staff could have an anxiety attack yep. or one of your staff could hit depression so low because isolation has been heavily linked to worsening depression? Yeah. And they start talking about, and I'm going to be pretty blunt here, they start saying some things that are going to make your gut swarm, and that yeah. is, are they going to harm themselves? Yeah. What does the organisation do under our duty of care, considering most of us are isolated or most of us are working on skeleton staff, in order to get that person immediate support? Yeah. Because it's, like, it's, it's going to happen more often under a highly pressured environment that is COVID than ever before. So that's, that's, that's been a big piece that we've been working with a lot of large organisations about, okay, I'm a manager, I'm talking to you through a computer, I can see that you're having an anxiety attack or you think that you are, but how do you know? Yeah. That could be a heart attack. There needs to be a systematic response. Yeah. And that is, who are we residing with? Do workplaces have access to that information so someone at the home can respond to them straight away? What does that look like? If all of your workers are working remotely, do we have access to all of their addresses and what does that mean for privacy? But right now I can't call an ambulance for you, Larry, if I don't know where you live. Yep. So there's all of these bits and pieces that we've been working through with large organisations to make sure that people are as safe as possible whilst we are experiencing the greatest sense of industry change. Yes. Where possible. So that's been busy. Uh, also, what else uh, we've been doing is we've been helping uh, people reconnect whilst being disconnected. So looking at shifts in leadership style, looking at shifts in, you know, we don't have the luxury of in-person cues anymore or a lot of us don't. So what are we actually really looking for and listening for in order to ask the right questions, to get the right information, to do the best that we can as leaders in this very mixed environment at the moment to make sure people are connected and looked after. That's amazing. And that's, that's a, um, you know, uh, I spoke to someone that I know well over the weekend about issues they were having work from home. Mm. And they were, they were, um, all of the issues that they've been having in a high-pressure job didn't go away. They got magnified by coming to a different working environment, like work from home. Mm -hmm. The isn't necessarily set up for work from home. Um, both the husband and the wife work from home uh, and both have fairly high-pressure jobs. Uh, one's in a start-up and the other's um, senior in a, a position. The other is um, uh, two kids, one sort of just starting school and a toddler. Um, you know, the, the pressures of homeschooling. Um, am I going to, you know, is my industry, my job going to be safe afterwards? And, oh, by the way, we've got a client meeting on today and it's at three o'clock. And it's like, well, oh, hold on. Can we make that one because we've got the, well, oh, no, it's got to be three. And the pressure of that, 
uh, I, I see the social economic impacts of that being huge, let alone um, just the the um, the uh, productivity and the and just in like the mental illness. It's got to be seen as this is a this is going to we're going to have to invest in what you're doing. We're going to have to invest, and I'm going to add more to that pressure, Larry. And that is, you know, there's a lot of attention drawn to, and I have the utmost respect for people that are balancing their entire world inside their house. Yep. Because before this, our worlds were on, our houses were on the outside of the world, right? We could go where we want, do what we wanted, but now that world has come inside the house, and so you've got to run and completely well, what we define as our new normal and then still perform with what we perceive to be our optimum. Let me flip it a little bit. Imagine if you were running the world from your house, but you had no one else to talk to about it. So drawing attention to those people that are isolating alone. Yes. So again, that you've, you've got two buckets and, and they're both incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging with how, how, to, how to perform at your optimum whilst dealing with all this pressure, one being, well, absolutely zero people to talk to unless it's via a computer or trying to run my family or my ship, but meanwhile trying to run a job as well. So there's, there's, there's two flip sides to the amount of stress that this particular situation is drawing into how we are now living our working lives. Yeah, it's amazing. I, 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 I just wrote a note down there. Um, um, mental health is critical incidents. Why wait around for that? What What's the baseline capability? Because it is, you know, we, we're just, we're employing some more people. And um, when we're doing the sort of capability analysis, where we talk about the inside capability, you have um, a competency. Are they competent at the tasks you want them to do, the skills? Uh, do they, uh, are, are they, um, is there capacity there? You know, if they're doing other things, are they sure they're going to get our stuff done? Is there a commitment to our purpose? Uh, do they share sort of the same values that we've got we're at least close to? And a, a, a critical one is about um, their um, ability to, um, to be mentally fit in these times of change, especially for us. You know, our mental fitness sitting in this room where we're monitoring conditions at a global and national and state base basis. Yeah. Doing crisis management uh, for um, uh, associations, uh, industry associations, where training people in strategy to think their way into the post COVID economy. Um, all of that going on, we have to know that they're capable, they're, they're mentally capable of keeping up. Our understanding that it's no, if you can't, there's no, that's no, um, uh, black mark against anyone because it's hard. But being on the front foot, because I, I sort of wrote down, written down, you know, I just wonder how many people in supervisory management positions and even in the world understand what it feels like to have depression, what it feels like to have anxiety and what happens during treatment, particularly with online, say, psychology. Because um, I can tell you depression is... It's, it's hard you know, when you're in depression, like I've had it, you don't know you're there and it just feels shitty. Mm. It's not until you've had it for a while and you've been out in your back that you can actually isolate yourself from the feeling or the notion or the impact, whatever it is. 
Now that's one thing, just a depression and just training people what it's like, you know, um, to, to be uh, um, in that sort of state of what it feels like, you know, just imagine this has happened or that's happened. What does it feel like? And just get them to even try to actually manifest those sort of, um, that sort of condition. The other thing with anxiety, you know, you said something very important to me. Are they having a heart attack or are they, you know, I've had, I've had um, uh, anxiety attacks. No reason. I'm not even necessarily feeling anxious or anything. Bang, they come and get you. With me, it starts with a aching jaw and my throat starts to go like that and then it gets up here. And I, I've learned to meditate them away, that I have a little pill. If it gets too out, I drop the pill. The only problem with that is I'm asleep for two days. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and it, it, I, it, you have to do it. But, you know, you can train yourself as, you know, I've hoped to do and I, I still do, where, you know, because, you know, the hypertension is quite high and yet that's where, you know, I always have a, a blood pressure monitor if I'm going to go into that sort of state because the amount of information I'm getting and trying to pass it out, you have to sort of like meditate and let yourself blow it away, you know, as a, so what a friend of mine says, blow it out your backside, basically what they say. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, just knowing what that feels like and being able to know, well, you know, there's some people in pretty high pressure jobs and there's some people who are, you know, very successful who manage these conditions. So you've got to A, talk about it, A, and B, get yourself educated. I mean, I think that's, that's something that is a baseline for you guys, isn't it? Well, there is. And, there's, and you know, more so in, in your camp, Larry, there's nothing more effective than the power of storytelling. Yes. Right? Yep. And I, I love telling my story around my condition. And I think it's, you know, and that's probably more powerful than everyone needs a system, yeah. particularly in industry and business, because there's a lot of us and we need something to, to follow. But in order for people to respect that system and to buy into it, they need people to still tell stories because a lot of people don't know what it feels like. And even if they are experiencing it, they probably don't know that they are. Yeah. They haven't sought a pre-diagnosis. Now, I, I've got to be, I, you know, obviously I'm very diligent in staying in my lane, um, you know, because I'm not a clinical practitioner. Um, I'm certainly not one of those. But it's really important that how, how an organisational industry chooses to prioritise and respect this stuff, particularly now, needs to be done well and it needs to be done with truth because what, what with men, what, what's happening with mental health right now is people are scared of it and we tiptoe around it. Absolutely. What we need, what's working and what's working for a majority of my clients is giving them the permission, the how-to and the implementation and then checking in on how they're going. This yeah. whole textbook, here's a training program, we'll drop it off at your door or we'll yeah. have one of our guys deliver it to you and off we go. Yeah. That's not sustainable mental health practice. No. You're not going to keep your people safe doing that. No. It needs to be something that is living and breathing. Yes. And that involves a multitude of layers. Not Because my, my key is simplicity. And it's important that you introduce education and then you support them to implement the skills that they have learnt via the education. And underneath that, the stigma starts to drop. Yes. That's all it is. It is educate, implement, and you watch what happens to that stigma. Yeah. But 
those organisations wouldn't be in their situation and, and celebrating as much as they are now if they didn't give their staff the permission and they didn't prioritise getting it done. It's funny you should say that because, um, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to every sort of group you can think of, bike clubs, um, car clubs, what are the, you know, the community clubs, uh, I spoke to Power Corps and some of their their people up in Bendigo who are on the high vis and all that. And a, a, a um, you know every type of human being you can think of. Yeah. And the uh, uh, the blokes that tend to open up and unbutton uh, the guys on the tours. Yep. And, you know they're big macho guys and now they're sharing. The, you know I just open my heart and just my head and just share my story and say. You know, I had my marriage broke down and then I got cancer and then I got this and got that and I thought this happened and that happened and then I went broke once and then I... And, you know, it just allows a, a, um, a, uh, a conversation to come out where everyone starts talking and the ones that don't necessarily talk as much are the sort of the, um, the um, supervisory going into management Senior management, if they're confident in themselves, and at least local up, but it's the ones that are trying out. What is do I need to be to climb the ladder? And I find that was interesting. I don't know if you found that. I always see it. I see it every day, yeah. uh, and that, that that leads us straight back around to when you were talking about vulnerability, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, good I mean, leaders. Good leaders are vulnerable. Good. Good leaders are human. Good leaders understand that uh, they need to put people before process. And I know that sounds a bit wanky in its term, but it's definitely... Yeah, it doesn't. It's, you know, I, I, um, uh, I taught leadership skills in, you know, I was on the faculty of a business school and also a, um, uh, a, a, a corporate sort of uh, business school. Uh, run by several large corporations as a as a joint venture, and uh, um, it used to amaze me how many people went along to um, learn these sort of things. And uh, this is since the eighties, and then they go back and they weren't allowed to practice them. Mm. They weren't allowed to practice, you know, the baseline of being a human being. <laughs> it just struck me as being. I, I think. Normal leadership programs are a waste of time. Not not because they couldn't be useful in some way, but everyone every time we've written one, and it's the leading program and the leadership knowledge, it's like communication programs. I just say, just accept the human condition isn't good at communicating, and the human condition isn't good at leading. Um, but what is it to be a human being? You know, that's a that's a question for today for me. What is it to be a real human being and be with other human beings? And I think it's just creating a safe space to let that happen. Now, you know, with, with industry, there's, 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 two, there's two reasons or two primary reasons that I find stops people, right? We won't prioritise it because we've spoken about it being too hard or too far away or not a priority. The other fear that I get from workplaces and industries is if we start talking about it and we start finding out that more and more of our staff are unwell, they're all going to go off sick. Yeah. So it's that fear of okay, we, don't, we don't want to open up Pandora's box, but what people, what industry doesn't realise is that Pandora's box is going to open anyway. It's already open. 
It just depends. It must be through COVID-19. It just depends on how much you want to clean up. Yeah. Once that box is open, have you left it to the last minute where it's purely reactionary? And yes, this person is too unwell to work, so yes. off they go. Whereas if they've had supportive, upskilled conversations from people in their workplace to catch signs earlier, make adjustments earlier, offer support earlier, these people would still be with us and working well. Yeah, and you would have kept that corporate memory and the cost, the cost of being a human being to other human beings is really low. And it, it, okay, you might get upset at the start. Yep. It's only, it's only sort of identifying, oh, you've got a broken leg, you've got a broken leg. You've got, hey, well, 90% of the people are walking around with broken legs or at yep. least a good fracture. Let's get them fixed. Imagine the productivity you're going to have. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd even take it back further and go, imagine, imagine the productivity before they even broke their leg. Yes. So imagine, you know, when, you know, yeah. I always say there's two easy terms for people to remember if you are thinking about bringing these kinds of programs into your workplace because you're going to need them is if someone changes in their performance and normally a reduction or a drop in performance or their behaviour starts to change, we don't need upskilling for that. We just need permission to act on it out of a state of care rather than dragging someone down a performance management line when it might have just been, hey, yeah. You're not yourself lately. You dropped the ball on a couple of things. That's not my priority right now. My priority is you. Yeah. What's going on and what do you need? Yes. If those conversations were happening earlier in the piece, there would be less, um, less to clean up and it would certainly be the golden handshake to help drop the level of stigma that exists not only in our communities with mental health but all across the Australian industry. You know, I knew this would happen. What? My favourite subject was my favourite speaker. And, <laughs> and we might go over time, but as I think, as I say um, professionally, bugger it, let's do it. Now, so I want to come now to, we're looking at these four horizons that we're sort of seeing as emergent, immediate and emergent uh, as the conditions are. If you like, we had 2019, the fires and bang, we had the shock of COVID-19, which was rel relatively very quick, as exponential uh, as it grew in itself, uh, created a, a, a state of this horizon one, as we call it, disorientation, um, health-wise and socially, economically. We're all disoriented. We're like, if you've got people and you swizzle them around very quickly and you sat them down and asked them to write a letter, guaranteed they mostly couldn't do it because they're so disoriented. So, you know, there is that time to sort of re-establish and stabilise yourself. I know that, say, for instance, I was buying some technical gear at one of the local shops here and um, uh, they'd sold out of, you know, Wi-Fi gear and all this because everyone's working from home, didn't have enough gear. Mm. Uh, I don't know what to buy, but just get it so I can work from home. Um, and that happened at breakneck speed. We're still in that, we see we're still in that disorientation phase and just begging to come out as fast as we can because suppression has flattened the curve, et cetera, et cetera. And we just want to get back to normal, which is an impossibility for a bundle of reasons. Um, so we see this horizon too as the COVID-19 economy. And that's sort of surviving um, and thriving uh, in lockdown as long as restrictions are in place. And that sort of, when we say restrictions, you say, well, what do you mean? You go, well, 
you know, uh, a, a stage two um, um, response is sure you can go out and you can do things in groups of 10 and you can do that and some things can open, but, you know, uh, high volume people like pubs and that won't be able to open and get back to their uh, business models. Uh, people will still be working from home. They'll still won't, you know, people have locked borders, so you won't be able to go on holiday. So, so there's the restrictions um, don't go back to normal. They don't allow the social economics to go back to normal uh, because COVID-19 is not going to go away until we've got really good treatments and we've got uh, hopefully a vaccination, which is two years to five years away, something like of that order. <clears throat> they might, happen, might get it to happen faster as a, as a treatment, but not necessarily a vaccine. Um, so it's always inherent uh, all over the world. It's a sleeper there for whatever it does as you come off suppression. So that COVID-19 is going to be there for some time. And you have to actually ask yourself the question, you know, what's the investment making COVID-19 economy work, social, economic wise? And, or what is the, um, uh, the cost, the investment required to go back to 2019? Because there has been uh, new ground covered. In, there will be new ground covered in um, COVID-19 economy, for instance, such as the low, lowering of costs for large organisations through people working from home full-time or part-time and online education through university, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got that, then you've got the third one, which is the sort of world after COVID-19 um, and some really some quite disorienting questions in that. Are we gonna go back? What is the new future that leads us to some sort of transform, transformed world? So this period of time is gonna be a time of great orientation, disorientation, orientation, disorientation transformation, orientation, disorientation. You know, what we're gonna have is artificial intelligence and all the stuff we had before in the future of work coming and I think rapidly change because there's, there's cheaper, better and faster ways of doing things that don't require offices and loads of people and all of those sorts of things. So they're gonna be empowered to come in. Um, do you need a motor car when you can't drive around even if petrol is 72 cents a litre? You know, those are the sort of things that are starting to be talked about. I just wonder how you see from a mental health challenges for organisations and leaders as they progress through those types of, or hopefully progress through those types of, um, of four horizons. Disorientation, reorientation, COVID-19 economy, post-world COVID-19 economy and maybe a transformed world. Well, that's the thing. I mean, all of those four horizons, Larry, are actually just all forms of change. Yes. And, you know, yes. even pre-COVID pre organisations, you know, look, they spend millions of dollars on change management support, right? Yeah. Um, and that's not going to stop, particularly now. Yeah. But there is one piece that us as organisations need to really rewind in our head and think why or why are we not prioritizing mental health is that every single one of those horizons comes with a level of uncertainty for people okay? and uncertainty or feeling uncertain or unsafe in self for yeah. a prolonged period of time is going to see employees burn out yeah. 
their relationships are going to struggle because we're already working on 50% communication access now, or a lot of us are. I do respect the fact that there are a lot of people still going to work. So it's really important that whether it's Horizon 1, Horizon 2, Horizon 3 or Horizon 4, they all mean change. And it might actually happen where we go back from Horizon 3 back to Horizon 2 because we don't know what's going to happen with a potential resurgence of COVID. No, uh, and, you know, that, that hasn't been... No one can answer that scientifically and, and, and confidently at this stage. Uh, all we know is that we're doing well right now. So it's really important that we as organisations prioritise mental health Give your people and your leaders the skills to be able to have a good conversation, to get good information, teach them their barriers and create that space. Because one thing from a change management perspective that we tend to neglect being industry is we don't ask enough questions. We like to assume on behalf of what's going to be better for the greater good or my organisation or my industry. The you know, consultation with your people is key, but people will not consult unless they have the permission to do it. So it doesn't matter what horizon we're in, and they're all pretty challenging. And yes. then we also need to understand that all of us going through disorientation, surviving the lockdown, um, you know, world post-COVID and then transformed world uh, are going to respond differently. And yes. one thing we need to be careful as humans is we tend to pigeonhole how we think everyone's going to respond, but every single individual res responds differently to change. The way that we can get better control as business, business and industry is by asking questions and getting ahead of the game before they have responded badly to change. Wow. Okay. I was expecting four key takeaways. <laughs> I also expected like one global one. <laughs> I've, I've got them roughly here. Firstly, mental health, prioritise it through yeah. all horizons. Secondly, develop skills, teach skills, provide good information, teach barriers so we know where to go and where not, like everyone ha can become a listener, this is how I see it, and a framer and then go, um, good information is to go uh, to uh, um, this treatment. Support services, yeah. We certainly don't want to add to the pressure by making everyone in industry put on a white coat. That's right. We don't want to do um, that. Teach barriers so you know which way, how far to get. Boundaries, to yeah. We need, people need boundaries, yeah. Yes, um, boundaries. Um, provide the space uh, to open up and quest, you know, allow questions and consultation. Give permission. I think that giving permission is spot on. People are waiting for it. They're yeah. begging for it. I, I wonder how many times, um, you know, when I was a kid, I, I hated school because it, it just did things to my head and self-esteem and everything. It was just horrible. And I, I used to welcome gastro. Oh, my God. Thank <laughs> God I've got gastro. My God, that's fantastic. <laughs> but I wasn't given permission to talk about how I was feeling. I was sent to a psychiatrist who gave me the Rorschach ink block test and all I did was lie about what the things really look like. Uh, <laughs> but um, then expect um, different responses from different people and get ahead of the game. Get ahead of the game. 
Yeah, I, I think we, we have sort of our sort of bit of our motto resilient futures is change ahead of change. But you're saying that I think that's a really good way of putting it in terms of mental health. So I'm seeing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Now, I've got to tell you a story. As Dave, my, David Platt, my uh, fantastic partner, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for David Platt, I can tell you. He's my, him and my wife are my levelling forces <laughs> in, in this crazy state and this business I'm in. But um, I don't like odd numbers. I only like even numbers. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of spectrum. There. So give me a tenth. Give you a tenth. All right. Okay. Prioritise mental health. I've, I've, I've saved the best till last. Oh. If business and industry needed a time to prioritise mental health more so than ever, we're in it. Now, this is going to sound brutal, but this is how I work. I read something, I don't know whether it was one of those memes on Facebook or whatever, it really landed well with me. And people are like, well, one thing COVID has done is teach us to wash our hands. And we really should have been doing that before the damn thing hit anyway. Same philosophy with mental health. We're going to find ourselves more forced than ever to have to respond to people that are undergoing excessive stress and excessive prolonged uncertainty. So use this time to force yourselves to do it. I don't care if you force it because if you force it, it's there and then we can work with the rest of it. But it's just about getting it there. So wash your hands pre-COVID, definitely wash your hands post-COVID. We should have been giving attention to mental health even before we experienced a global pandemic. But use this moment now to really bring mental health in and use this time to bring it in well. What else would I expect? Thank you so much. That was terrific, Anna. My absolute um, pleasure. I could listen to you all day. Because <laughs> all I'm doing is getting a, My own voice. a, <laughs> getting a free cons uh, um, uh, counselling session. <laughs> I'm just going to play this every day, I guess. See, Larry, that's what you should do. Oh, real, is it? Yes, that's what you should do. Thanks so much, Anna. I really appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it too. And I'm, uh, sure I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up with you again uh, over this time in more time. Absolutely. And it was my absolute pleasure being here. And I think wherever you can give me a forum to champion these messages, the more people we're going to have safe and well and hopefully reach that new normal, whatever that looks like. Wonderful. Thanks, Anna. Thank Thanks, you Larry. We hope you've enjoyed the Straight Talk in the COVID Economy podcast. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. For more free content that will enhance your understanding of this new COVID economy and the actions that you can take to leverage disruptive change, join the Resilient Futures Network at www.resilientfutures.com slash get started. And please support our partner, Impact Africa Network at www.impactafrica.network. We need all the support we can to help them build their own incubator. We know that there are many other great podcasts out there and your time is precious and you chose to listen to Straight Talk on the COVID economy. And we appreciate that. Thank you.